Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Think of all the things that you believed in that have recently been shattered, that the government might protect us from a pandemic, that Congress and our democracy were secure, that COVID came from a wet market in Wuhan, that Bill Gates was a paragon of business and personal virtue. Now add to this growing list the belief in the quality and ethic of the United States Secret Service. With respect to the Secret Service, albeit some of our views come from Hollywood. But surprise, not all Secret Service agents are Clint Eastwood or Gerard Butler or Nicolas Cage. Now, as a result of the great investigative reporting of my guest, three-time Pulitzer Prize winner Carol Lennick, we have a look inside the reality of life in the Secret Service. While the service long lived by the shibboleth of zero fail, today that goal exists inside a nation more divided than ever, more armed and angry than ever, and a secret service that's overworked, overtasked, and even sometimes incompetent. We're going to talk about all of this today with Carol Lennick. Carol is a national investigative reporter at the Washington Post, where she's worked since 2000. She's a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, A Very Stable Genius. It is my pleasure to welcome Carol Lennig to the program to talk about her new work, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, I'm so glad to join you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. When we talk about the Secret Service as this organization of now 7,000 men and women and the aspects that you write about, are we talking about the entire service or is it really a greater focus on, on the elite presidential detail? Well, you know, the whole organization is best known for its protection of presidents, but the organization does so much more than that. Unfortunately, the lives of people who protect the president or the lives of people who are in the field office um, investigating financial crimes and cyber hacking, they actually switch roles quite often and they are intertwined. So one function ends up hurting the others. The problem is the presidential mission, protecting the president, keeping him alive, making sure he gets to bed every night alive. It is the zero-fail mission, the one that they can't make a mistake on. But this agency is shortchanged and, and stretched too thin. Agents tell me it's a lot like it was, at least the warning signs, are a lot like the warning signs before Kennedy was killed. An agency sort of run ragged and trying to do its best to keep up, but just, just treading water. You point out that one of the reasons that, that it's so difficult for them to keep up, and we'll get into some of the cultural issues in a minute, but in terms of economic issues and the degree to which the agency is stretched so thin, is that they've been reluctant sometimes to ask for more because of the need for secrecy and not wanting to reveal too much. Talk about that. Yeah, the, the word secret is a double-edged sword. So at the Secret Service, there's all sorts of classified secret programs that we don't want the enemy to know about. You know, we don't want adversaries to realize the classified nature of programs that keep the president safe from a truck bomb, keep him from inhaling anthrax if somebody tries to slip that into a package directed at him. We don't want to explain all those things, so they're secret. But some people, a subset of the agency that's gotten very arrogant and insular and even a little bit, um, I would say, cocky, uh, they have abused that word secret to cover up misconduct, but also cover up vulnerabilities, cover up chinks in the armor. 
and, and sort of in their DNA, resist revealing that there are weaknesses, that there are vulnerabilities in the agency that need to be patched and repaired. It's ironic, I suppose, that even though zero fail is the mission, that that in the history of the agency, the changes that have been made, the things that, that have really shifted focus at the agency have been when they have failed, whether it was the negativity after the Kennedy assassination or, or the public image improvement after the positive response to the Reagan assassination attempt. 100% correct. I mean, uh, several agents used this phrase with me called born of blood, that the Secret Service's um, methodology is often uh, reexamined and reframed after a tragic attack or tragic event. You know, after Kennedy was assassinated, the the Secret Service detail began assessing actual locations in high-rise buildings along a motorcade to make sure that there was not a line of sight for someone to shoot, which seems sort of like now really obvious, but wasn't obvious then. Uh, After Reagan was shot and nearly killed, uh, the Secret Service began using magnetometers at all events that the president visited because they wanted to make sure there were no weapons brought in close range to the president. They also used something called covered arrivals to sort of conceal the president's exit so that, you know, an attacker couldn't get ready and also have a clear shot. How much is the service impacted by its public reputation, by the way Hollywood thinks about it, by the way they know the public thinks about them? You know, I think that the Hollywood perception has both been a boon and a negative for the service. The boon is that they appear perfect. Uh, You know, Line of Fire is a great example because it's based on the real-life experience of a detail leader named Jack Reddy, who was with JFK that day, was his detail leader. And one could argue he and many agents failed um, to really react in real hair-trigger time to protect the president. But Jack Reddy, uh, or Clint Eastwood, um, redeems himself and saves someone else with his incredible dedication. The part about that dedication that's conveyed in the Hollywood image is true. I have never met people more willing to sacrifice their lives, their their health, um, their everyday sort of normalcy for the mission. Um, their dedication is really unparalleled in, in many of the people that I have met. But that perfection is, is um, untenable, uh, and especially with the lack of tools that the agency now has to do the job and the lack of personnel that it has for this overwhelming mission. You know, I don't think this is the service doesn't need to be fixed just by pouring more money into it. It needs to be fixed by somebody reassessing the mission, which is really, really too large. The number of people on the job could do it if the service wasn't also protecting the president's life, 42 other people's lives, including presidential grandchildren, um, cabinet members whose names most people don't know, uh, if the service wasn't also protecting Super Bowls and Olympics, events that could be the target of terror, if the circuit service wasn't also investigating, you know, its legacy uh, assignments, which are financial crimes, 
and now more in modern times, cyber thefts and hacking. These are this is just too much for for the number of people and the amount of money they have today. How much has the culture of the Secret Service changed over the years to get to this kind of frat boy culture that seems to be dominant or seems to have been dominant lately? So, you know, in 2012, which Jeff, which is when I first enter the scene and start reporting on the Secret Service, there is just, you know, this this incredible feeling of humiliation. It was considered the most humiliating scandal in the Secret Service history, except for the assassination of Kennedy, which is saying a lot. Um, and this was when 12 agents and officers were unceremoniously shipped back from a presidential trip in Cartagena, Colombia, because they had basically turned the trip into a Boys Gone Wild Vegas weekend. They'd gotten hammered, had a big night out on the town, tons of drinking, brought prostitutes back to their rooms, and they got caught uh, because one agent refused to pay one of the women, and the and the local police in Colombia were brought in to sort through um, this sort of dispute over payment. Well, the director, Mark Sullivan, testified in several ongoing congressional investigations that this was shocking to him, that this had never happened before. He never, none of this had ever been condoned. Um, he was so surprised, you know, but agents told me and revealed to me that this was, you know, just not true, that agents had often had a reputation for hard work and hard partying. You know, while you stand in stairwells all night long and you walk convention centers, making sure that every single step the president takes is going to be secure when you're doing that incredible drudgery and also giving up of your own personal life, missing birthdays. You know, I know agents who miss literally being the best man in their friend's wedding because of a last minute assignment for the president. When you're giving all that up, um, some agents decided they were going to party hard when they could. And these international trips became almost like a perk, you know, something people requested of their supervisors that they that they join because when they got to this sunny tropical place or this gorgeous European city, they'd have a little downtime, a little time to party. And uh, oftentimes it, it kind of got rowdy. This culture, though, goes back to even Dallas, where you talk about agents that were out drinking the night before. That's right, Jeff. Um, also a, a really painful moment for the Secret Service. In that episode, just to set the stage, keep in mind the Secret Service agents who are responsible for the president at that point for Kennedy, number less than 35. Many of them are literally treading water. They, do, they cannot keep up with all the assignments. Some of them told me in interviews that they would show up at their doorstep with a bag full of a suitcase full of dirty laundry, have enough time to drop it on the doorstep and pick up another suitcase of clean laundry from their wife to go back out on the road again. And they, you know, agents have told me stories of that era when they were literally staying up for 24 hours straight because there wasn't another supervisor who could spell them. So they're, they're running and gunning. They're moving as quickly as they can. And in Dallas, many of the most senior supervisors on the president's detail were not present. 
the head of the detail was taking his first vacation day uh, in three years and was back in Washington. So it was a pretty strained time. They land in Fort Worth the night before the motorcade through Dallas. This is the kickoff of President Kennedy's reelection campaign. And they land 11 o'clock at night, get the president and the first lady into their suite. And then they try to go out and look for sandwiches and a drink. They can't find any sandwiches. The press club that they were going to visit is out of food. They get one drink, but it closes down. So they head to this place called The Cellar, which is kind of a scandalous beatnik bar, cafe. The waitresses don't wear very many clothes. Um, and the drinks are spiked with grain alcohol. They serve fruit juice, but secretly, again, spike the drinks with pretty high proof um, <laughs> Uh, spirits. And some of the agents that night that would be with the president the next day are up until 2, 3, and 5 a.m. before they get home to their hotel rooms to sleep. The Warren Commission, which investigated the assassination of President Kennedy, focused a good bit on this issue of the agents being up so late. And the, the head of that commission, Chief Justice Earl Warren, that he just could not believe that the agents wouldn't have had more of a hair trigger reflex had they gotten a good night's sleep, had they not gone out to a bar drinking and socializing till all hours of the night. The director of the Secret Service took issue with this, and he said, essentially, he did not believe any of the drinking that happened that night um, or the late night had caused Kennedy's death and that he didn't think it would have made a difference. Uh, but if you look at the recordings and the tapes and the Zapruder film of that day, you see that the agents don't have a hair trigger reflex. And partially that could be blamed on, you know, training, a lack of training in automatic response, which the Secret Service did famously repair and improve after Kennedy's assassination. Or you could say that their lack of hair trigger reflex was because they were tired um, and not moving quickly. Besides the, the drinking the night before, you talk about part of the reason they were tired was, was the incredible pace that they were on as a result of, of Kennedy. To what extent has the Secret Service been a reflection at different times of the presidents they were serving? So, so, so um, important because... The Secret Service often, I found, takes on, if not the personality of the president and his White House, it takes on the, um, the challenges of the man in the office because those person's challenges to get reelected and to stay in touch with voters essentially become the mission in some respects for the service, at least the practical part. Not the political part, but the practical part. So just as an example... In Kennedy's era, um, you know, agents were high-flying, jet-setting folks who were trying to help the president get out on the road and be among the people. They weren't thrilled by how close he wanted to get and how frequently he mowed right into groups, but they were trying to help him do that. And they did acquiesce to Kennedy's requests over and over again when he asks for agents to stay back and stay away from him because he wants to project the image of a 
of a man of the people, a candidate who doesn't need protection from his voters, which is an ongoing tension for presidents. President Bush, both George Herbert Walker and George W. Bush were beloved by the agents. And part of that was that both of them had, well, especially the father, had a long history of public service, really deferred to the Secret Service on their security decisions. When they said, it's not a good idea to do this, the first President Bush typically said yes. But both the Bush families also treated the Secret Service agents like family. You know, this was a to-the-manner-born dynasty, and uh, they were used to having, if you will, help, (laughs) and um, they treated them very well. Um, So there was a really kind of a a great love relationship between the agency and the service at that time. The Clinton presidency was a stressor for the the Secret Service because uh, Clinton was the first sort of television president where he was going to make his his image through our television screens in our living room, and he was going to convey who he was that way. And the way to convey that was really to keep agents out of the, the perimeter, out of the shot, so to speak. They were really stressed about being pushed away from the president. And there was another reason, which they didn't fully appreciate until later, But the president was, as we now know, trying to have some romantic relationships that were outside of his marriage, um, most notably with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. And he was trying to get privacy and keep the Secret Service at bay. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton, also not a big fan of the Secret Service. She believed they were too close to the previous President Bush. And Information was leaked about an argument she had with her husband, allegedly had with her husband, early in their time in the presidency. And she banished the Secret Service from the residence second floor down to the first floor to keep them farther away. Again, a stressor for the service, not because they want to be right in the family's life and invading their privacy, but because they believe they can perform their security mission in the case of an emergency so much better if they are within arm's reach. One of the results of this, though, and, 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 you know, it's a question how it affected the reputation of the service because of their reaction, for example, to the Clintons, you know, the, the tell-all books that came out after by people like Gary Byrne and Aldrich, etc., which didn't seem to really help the reputation of the Secret Service. The service was pretty sensitive about its reputation um, and, and anxious about that. Uh, but but there are two things going on in the Clinton era. One is the service really does, in its DNA, care deeply about the motto, worthy of trust and confidence. They care deeply about the idea that you keep the confidence of the president because you want to stay close. You know, the director at the time of that of the Secret Service went all the way to the Supreme Court to prevent Secret Service agents from having to testify before the grand jury. Some people believed the director was doing that as a favor to the president. The director insisted he was doing it because he did not want any president in the future to believe that that agents would basically tell all. If they told all, told what they heard at the president's shoulder uh, as part of an investigation, no matter what nature the investigation was, then presidents would push them away from the shoulder. And when that happens, the security mission is compromised. 
And there are many really good examples of this. But as for, you know, tell-all books, I don't know that gossip about the president's families um, is that valuable. Uh, it's interesting and titillating. But the most important thing to me is is understanding the stress the Secret Service is under and often is not willing to acknowledge. It's not willing to have a fight with its president and, and say we need X, Y, Z. And it's not willing to tell the public and Congress that it's struggling. Um, that is a reputation hit that the Secret Service needs to take in order to get better and in order to help its public servants deliver on the zero fail mission. And amidst all of this, the penultimate effort was the Obama presidency, which was like no other in so many respects. Absolutely. When Barack Obama was on his way from election victory to inauguration, and, and is called the president-elect, during that time, threats against his life spiked, and they were four times the level of threats for a president in previous history. The threat level was so high, and the violence articulated in, you know, white supremacist and ex national extremist uh, sort of dark websites, the, the promise of violently preventing Barack Obama from going into the White House was so visceral that the director asked for hundreds of millions of dollars to try to harden the perimeter around the White House and protect his new incoming president. It happened coincidentally that the service had been on a painful slow slide in terms of its capacity to protect him. And during the the two terms that he served in office was, you know, a pretty painful period of a series of keystone cop moments where the Secret Service just repeatedly failed or engaged in behavior that was embarrassing. Um, it, it happened over and over again. Shots at the White House that the Secret Service didn't realize had hit the house until a White House cleaner found glass four days later on the Truman balcony. You know, um, a jumper who was able miraculously with a limp wearing plastic Crocs to get from a public uh, sidewalk to deep inside the White House. The first person to get in the White House, by the way, as an intruder in history, um, in 29 seconds, every single, you know, ring of protective security around the White House and on the grounds failed that day when Omar Gonzalez made it inside. The, the serial misconduct, uh, including Cartagena, agents getting hammered, agents getting plastered in the keys as they as they worked worked <laughs> to protect um, President Obama and his family before they arrived for a family vacation. You know, there just were so many episodes that were really not, not the Secret Service's best. And yet, in eight years of the, the Obama presidency, they were, it was zero fail. Absolutely. The president, no president has died. Uh, no president has been assassinated since Kennedy in 1963. And that is, I think, uh, agents tell me they feel that's a testament to the dedication of the men and women who serve. You know, the, this, this commitment they have, we will give all, we will do it, sir. You know, even when they don't have everything they need. But what agents and officers 
are also communicating to me is they want to ring the alarm bell that those warning signs of problems, um, just, just those three I mentioned involving President Obama's tenure, if that can happen, then it's a matter of time before a catastrophe happens and the enemy is successful rather than an untrained, um, you know, delusional jumper. It's just a matter of time before somebody finds the correct chink in the armor and gets through. So their warning is, let's, let's do something before that happens. Let's not react and, um, and make up our strategy for protecting the president uh, after, after the blood is shed. And yet the Trump presidency created yet another perfect storm where the culture of the Secret Service, or at least some of the culture of it, as we've talked about, met headlong with the culture of the Trump presidency in ways that that arguably didn't do any good for anybody. No, you're absolutely right. Um, You know, after Obama discovers in, in 2014 that the Secret Service has some pretty serious vulnerabilities in protecting him... He asked for a blue ribbon panel to begin assessing what does the service need. And the service is on its way to implementing several of those recommendations. Of course, President Obama, unfortunately, short circuits himself one of those recommendations, which was to bring in a director who's not from the service, somebody with a fresh eye. But President Obama is more comfortable with somebody he knows, his formal former detail leader, Joe Clancy, and names him as the director instead. But, but as he's leaving, as the Obamas are leaving and the Trumps are arriving, the service is still in that sort of slightly weakened state of trying to recover and rebuild. And here they come into the hands of President Trump, who's much less interested in governing and strategic mission and, and sort of repairing and rebuilding the government, he's much more interested in, in paring it down dramatically. You may remember he wanted a, a one-third cut in the State Department, a one-third cut in the budget of EPA, um, heavy, heavy knife to all the agencies. So he's not focusing on governing. He's focusing on the optics of, you know, getting tough on crime, getting tough on immigration at the border, which is probably his number one issue. And the Secret Service repair and rebuild plan is basically shelved and put on hold. Um, The fence that was supposed to, the new higher fence that was supposed to be installed when when President Trump arrives, he, he talks about maybe we should reconsider it. He doesn't like the look of it. So that is delayed. Other improvements are delayed. um, And the budget is, you know, doesn't even get a cost of living adjustment. On top of that, President Trump really views agencies as tools he can deploy for his political benefit. Now, every president does that to an extent, but it was particularly sharp experience um, with President Trump. And so the service is deployed for his, his political purposes. Number one, helping arrange all of his campaign rallies amid COVID as it's spiking around the country helping him clear um, Lafayette Square after the protesters upset about George Floyd's murder by police um, come to the White House to protest and demand reform 
demand a new, fresh look at the systemic racism in police departments. He deploys the service again um, when he himself has COVID and wants to take a sort of joyride around the hospital at Walter Reed where he has been taken for treatment so that he can show the faithful he supports them and that he is on the mend. Um, Secret Service agents have to help him leave his hospital while he is suffering from COVID and put him into an SUV uh, to take this joyride. They're wearing a lot of gear, but it still puts them at risk and it puts all the other people who helped make that joyride come true at risk as well. Finally, what does all this say about the future of the Secret Service? What's next for them, do you think? I think I'm just going to quote or paraphrase a very senior Trump administration official in the Department of Homeland Security who told me that after reviewing the Secret Service's budget, its mission, and its multiple failures uh, over previous years, that person said somebody in the next presidency, the next administration, has to sit down, look at this information, and decide what the Secret Service's mission really is, because they can't do it now with what they have. Uh, the person recommended paring down that mission um, and, and also giving them the actual 21st century technology that they need and deserve. They've been shortchanged ever since 9-11. Every other national security agency has gotten all sorts of toys, bells, whistles, the best, you know, mission impossible kind of equipment. But the service is stuck in, in the, you know, in the dark ages, relatively speaking. Um, in 2017, alarms, cameras, fence sensors all failed, allowing another jumper to get onto the grounds um, and stay there for 17 minutes without being detected because of all these security glitches. You know, we can't have the most secure 18-acre compound in the country, the one that is supposed to be the most secure. We, as Americans, we can't tolerate uh, all of its security being on the fritz. Well, I guess Joe Biden should be happy major and champer there at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Secret Service, if I could say one last thing, sure. they're, they're an amazing agency. They're so dedicated to what they do. Many of them um, are just awe-inspiring. And I, I think that they would sit down with Joe Biden if they were allowed and say, you know, stop thinking of yourself as a president who has to be sensitive about rebuilding and pouring a little more money and staffing into this protection agency for you. Stop thinking about it as, as something for you and start thinking about it as an agency of public servants who deserve the tools they need to do their job for the, for the betterment of democracy, democracy, for the safety of democracy. Carol Lennick, the book is Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I really enjoyed it, Jeff. Have a good day. Thank you.